as somebody without, you know, cognitive decline right now, like I see that, like we see immediately how television affects us on so many in our emotions and affect us not just for in that moment, but it stays with us for hours and days after we watch these films. Well, you know, so as I mentioned, I am a practitioner of Zen Buddhism. Um, I sit meditation many, uh, most most mornings. Um, and one of the things that we talk about is the importance of consumption. Like, what do we consume? And people think of that as food and yeah. beverages, but it's also, what do we take into our minds? Totally. You know, what am I watching that is having a negative impact on my health and my emotions? What games am I playing? What conversations am I engaging in? So anything, like we take in, right? We take in totally. in so many different ways and we need to consume mindfully. Yes. No, I like, I really appreciate that you brought that up because that's a skill um, that anybody can, it's a muscle that anybody can develop. It's that ability to be discerning about what you are consuming on all levels, like the quality of your water, your food, your thoughts, your um, television, the news, like what news are you taking in? Um, You know, what people are you allowing into your life? Like it really extends to so many levels. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and as always, we are so thrilled and grateful and excited to have the awesome guests that take their time out to be on our show and share their wisdom with you, with myself, with our team and the globe. So thank you to our guests that participate on this show. And thank you to you, all the listeners that are out there listening to these podcasts and sharing the episodes with your family and friends so that they can learn how to eat real to heal. Now on today's show, I'm so excited to welcome Allison Schreier. She's an exceptional human being who's gone through her own hardships, her own trials and tribulations in the world of dementia. You're going to hear about her heartbreaking story, but also to see how she turned that around to become very inspiring and a leader in her field of dementia. So Allison Schreier is a program manager at the University of Washington's Memory and Brain Wellness Center, and she also previously worked as a family care partner as well. She's a writer, teacher, dementia consultant, and co-founder of Zinnia TV. Allison has received the 2020 Modes Award for Innovation in Alzheimer's Care and was named the Visionary Caregiver of 2020 by caregiving.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to be meeting with Allison and learning all about what it means to be diagnosed with dementia, to be living with somebody who has dementia, everything that she learned from her husband, who at a very early age was misdiagnosed, then later, fortunately, um, after many years diagnosed, and you're going to learn about um, what that was like for her to go through that experience and for her children as well. After her husband's diagnosis, she left her job and to become a full-time caregiver and educator in dementia care. And of course, you're going to learn about Allison's new company, Zinnia TV, and the incredible things that Zinnia is doing to support families and individuals that are living with Alzheimer's and dementia as well. So stay tuned for this show and you know what to do. 
please, if you like this episode, share it with your family and friends. The world needs to know about all the new technologies, the new science, and also the old science when it comes to understanding brain health. We talk a lot about how food is medicine in this episode, and it is critical for people to know that food is your first line of defense against mental health disorders like Alzheimer and dementias, dementia and other mood disorders that are affecting millions of people around the globe. This fact might be not something that you're not quite aware of yet, but it's been predicted now that by the time 2030 rolls around, one in one people will have a mental health condition, depression, dementia, Alzheimer's. So we all need to band together, learn this information, share it with others. And so we can rise up, eat well, live well, make the lifestyle changes so we can have healthy minds, healthy bodies, and healthy communities. Now, before we dive into the show, two special announcements. It has been a long time since we've held a retreat in Whistler, BC, and on April 5th to April 8th, four days, three nights, you can join me in beautiful British Columbia in Whistler for the Illness to Wellness Retreat. This is going to be happening at the Squamish Lillooet Cultural Center, and it is going to be such a special retreat. We have so many great activities uh, to participate in. There's going to be cold dipping in the glacier waters, making a sacred heart drum that you get to take home with you, yoga, breath work, and of course, learning how to eat real to heal to reverse your chronic diseases. So please check out the links below and make sure you sign up for the event so you can be part of this exciting opportunity. There are limited seats, so get your spot now. Then if you can't attend the retreat in person, we have another exciting event and that is called Get Off Your Fat Ass, our six-week Fab to Fit program. So get off your fat ass isn't about being fat, overweight, obese. It means that you are absolutely fabulous. The F is for fabulous. The A is for authentically you. The other A is for awesome and amazing. You are perfect just the way you are. And of course, the T stands for transformational. Did you know that in one lifetime, you have the ability to turn your body into 2000 different versions of yourself? If you want to create diabetes, I can show you exactly how to do that. If you want to be free of diabetes and lean and fit and healthy, I can show you how to do that too. So join our six week fabulous to fit, get off your fat ass program. We only offer this once a year, so now's the time to sign up for it. And again, the link is below, and that kicks off on April 3rd, 2023. So I hope you'll join us because our previous students have just done extraordinary things. They reversed their chronic illnesses like PCOS, polycystic breast disease. Um, they were able to reverse diabetes, lose weight, gain more energy, um, heal their heart conditions. I mean, the list is so long. And on top of that, they also went out to accomplish their biggest, hairiest, most audacious goal in a fitness arena of their choice. 
So some people climbed one of the highest mountains that they had ever climbed. Other, another individual on her 50th birthday ran 50 kilometers and the list just goes on and on and on. So if you want to make 2023 the healthiest and most fit year that you've ever, ever, ever felt and been in your entire life, then definitely sign up for the fab to fit program links are below. And without further ado, let's meet Alison Schreier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet. And on today's episode, I'm so excited to welcome Alison Schreier from Zinnia TV. Welcome, Alison. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited to have you, especially because we have, we've done a few um, episodes on brain health and how to optimize brain health, but we haven't sat with an expert in dementia and dementia and Alzheimer's, I would say as well. And so this is what we're going to be diving into today, but I want you to take me back and take our audience back to how you first got into this because you were actually from the tech world, not necessarily the neuroscience world. That is correct. I was in, uh, yeah, so my background is in technology and I was doing my master's in um, writing, specifically writing for children. And during that time and, and kind of leading up to that time, I had noticed that my um, that my husband was starting to exhibit some strange behaviors. So at the time, our kids were kids were small. I'm going to school. He loses his job because he's making some very poor decisions at work. And uh, over the period of the next of, of about six years, we started seeing all different kinds of therapists, psychiatrists trying to figure out why are we seeing this, uh, these behaviors in my husband. And in the end, what we discovered at, when he was 47 was that he had something called frontotemporal dementia. So the kids were 12 and 15 at the time. I was in the um, revisions on my first published novel. <laughs> so I was a busy lady. Um, and I had to put everything on hold to spend uh, time basically creating myself as the glue that held the family together as we tried to grapple with this diagnosis that we had discovered. Mm -hmm. So I rapidly had to become something of an expert in this particular form of dementia, frontotemporal dementia. And um, so to do that, I just did lots of reading and lots of studying and doing lots and lots of things wrong, lots of things wrong. About a year and a half into my husband's diagnosis, we discovered that my stepdad had vascular dementia. So mm -hmm. I will pause just to say that there are probably, there are over a hundred different diseases that qualify as a dementia. So there is not actually a disease called dementia. Dementia is um, the name given to this bucket of potential symptoms. So my stepdad had vascular dementia. And so, in, so can I just, I just want to jump in there for two things. If you could yeah. just share with our audience um, what some of those symptoms were that your husband were, were experiencing. And then also the second part, um, 
in, I, and this is actually just a comment. So the, the hundred different types, hundred plus different types of dementia, I'm assuming that they're looking at the section of the brain that is affected. You are spot on. So basically um, for a disease to qualify as a dementia, it uh, impacts at least two parts of the brain. So for instance, if I were riding my bicycle and I flew off my bike into a post and hit the front of my head, I might damage my frontal lobe mm-hmm. and I have a traumatic brain injury, but it's only one part of my brain. I may behave a lot like a person who has frontotemporal dementia, but frontotemporal dementia impacts both the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. Right. And of course, as time goes on, dementia tends to spread to other parts of the brain. So in my husband's case with frontotemporal dementia, so that's the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. Mm -hmm. So we see two types of behaviors, two types of symptoms that occur as a result of that. So with the temporal lobe, we start seeing language type symptoms. Mm -hmm. So he starts um, kind of slurring his words a bit, using the wrong word, for instance. Mm -hmm. The frontal lobe part, so that is the part of our brain that is the last part to um, develop both as a species and as um, when we are uh, growing in our mother's womb, right? The Mm -hmm. brain is developing with the brain stem. And then eventually this last part that folds over the rest is the frontal lobe. And so this is our highest, um, it's the humanity part of our brain. It is the part of our brain that uh, regulates impulse control, the ability to see things from another person's perspective. So we talk about children um, as they are maturing, that that's the last part of their brain to really develop, right? So we especially talk about young men, for instance, who like, ah, their frontal lobe isn't really good. You know, that executive functioning piece isn't going to be ready, isn't going to be fully baked until they're probably in their mid to late 20s. And so a person with a frontal lobe dementia starts behaving a lot like a teenager, Right. Um, so they start making some questionable decisions. They start saying things that are surprising and potentially inappropriate. Um, but that executive functioning piece also governs our ability to, um, for instance, follow a sequence of steps. Um, so one of the things that happens with lots of dementias is this um inability to is a, is a procedural memory but with frontotemporal dementia we see that right at, at the outset that my husband would lose the ability to do things that he had once been able to do but the biggest part were these behavioral things and in fact with frontotemporal dementia there are different variants and each of those variants qualifies as a number as one of um, the hundred different diseases, right? Mm-hmm. So um, like there are different flavors of Alzheimer's disease and each of those is one of those hundreds. So my husband had something called behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, which means that the first symptom that we notice is a big shift in his behaviors. Right. And so at work, when I say that he was making poor decisions, so instead of going to a meeting, he might decide for instance, to go out into the hall and play foosball and just mm-hmm. blow off the meeting. Right. Um, he might say things in the meeting that really should not have been said, like the, you know, the thoughts that really should remain in your head instead yeah. of coming out of your mouth. And he would say things um, 
to the family, you know, having dinner with the kids when in, somebody might ask, like, you know, pass the salt, my husband would across the table just say, I'm feeling really horny right now. It's like, what are you saying? We're at dinner with our children. Right. Right. Yeah. And so um, when somebody has that kind of a dementia, especially that dementia typically happens in the 30s and 40s. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to also just back up there for a second. And because you're, I don't know if your audience is aware of the fact that um, dementia is a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. And what we know is that the stuff that's happening in your brain that will eventually result in dementia symptoms is going on for up to 20 years before symptoms occur. Yeah. And so for somebody who is developing their dementia in their thirties and forties, Wow. That means since the time that they were a very young person, this stuff was already starting to happen in their brain. Yeah. And that's something I just, um, I do a group coaching call every Tuesdays at 11. And uh, it's one of the things that I talked about. It's the same mm -hmm. as cancer. Like most people think that if they get diagnosed with cancer, it just happened. But cancer has been growing in your body for five to 20 years. Most cancers before it gets detected as a tumor that's impacting the rest of the symptoms or the system. And so you might get minor symptoms along the way, but nothing to indicate that you have cancer. So a lot of people think that these diseases are, you know, like they caught dementia, but, you know, or they caught cancer and that is not the case. It's being created over a long period of time. So I'm glad that you clarified that. Exactly. Yeah. And so back to this idea of the two parts of the brain. So Alzheimer's disease, for instance, the two parts of the brain that are initially impacted are um, the uh, hippocampus uh, and also the uh, temporal lobes. And so with the temporal lobes, that's where we are again going to see language issues. And so with language issues, um, they're slightly different than what we see in frontotemporal dementia. The language issues that we tend to see, some people have aphasia where they can't find a word. Again, we see people maybe using the wrong word in the beginning or maybe starting to slur a little bit. And that can get to the point that people actually have, um, they lose the ability to um, speak words um, even though they are thinking the words, they lose the ability to make those words. And so this is where somebody has a conversation and people refer to it as word salad, but it really sounds like gibberish where somebody is, um, like, it's just like, wow, what are you saying? And so of course, to support a person who is in that state, what we're paying attention to is not the words that they're saying, but the emotion behind the words, mm -hmm. we respond to the emotion. But yeah. the other part of the brain that is um, impacted has to do with um, wayfinding and memory. And so the wayfinding piece is something that is one of the first signs that maybe there's something that's not quite right with a person where they uh, have walked to the library every day for the last 40 years and today they get lost on the way to the library. Um, and then of course this progresses to people not being able to find their way around their own house or in care communities where people live in a room with a bathroom, they can't find their way from the room to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And then that memory piece, of course, is starts off as um, it's, it's short-term memory, the inability to find 
um, the inability to remember something that happened, um, what I had for breakfast, for instance. Um, and there's a big difference between the forgetfulness that we associate with dementia yeah. and the forgetfulness that we associate with normal aging, because of yeah. course we all start to have some issues as we get older. Um, but the difference is that with normal aging, I know that I've forgotten something mm. and I have a strategy to remember it. Okay. I'm really glad that you said that. Cause as you're talking about all of this, I'm like, I do all of those things. My daughters even do those, you know, like the other day she said, um, you know, I said, where are the keys? And she said, they're on the couch when, and she's like, why did I just say that? I meant the counter like in, you know, but she recognized that she mixed up the words. Also it's graduation and she's, you know, tired, staying up late, lots of things to think about. So right. it's just pure exhaustion. And for me as well, oh yeah, like exhaustion, you know, malnutrition. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, obviously, alcohol can play a part as well of, you know, making you feel like you have dementia or Alzheimer's, yeah. but there is yeah. definitely a difference. And I'm glad that you clarified that. So it's that you, you, so you don't know that you've lost the wit, your way. You don't know that you have short-term memory. You don't know that you are um, slurring your speech or mixing up your words. Um, and that would be the difference between somebody who is just exhausted and everyday forgetfulness versus somebody who actually. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's about distraction as well. So when I teach, um, so one of the things that I do in life is I teach a full day dementia class to long-term care providers, professional care partners. And it's a class that was developed by and is mandated by the state of Washington for anybody who works in long-term care. And so the example that I give is I say, so imagine that I am leaving my house, I'm meeting my sister for lunch. And as I'm walking towards my front door, I notice that my very old dog is sleeping in his little bed near the front door. And I think, oh man, I should probably, I need to put some uh, food out for him. And so I go back to the kitchen. And as I approach the kitchen, the thing that is in my head is feed the dog. But as I approach the kitchen, my phone rings. And I take the call and it's my sister and she's wondering, uh, you know, have you left yet? No, I was about to. Okay, cool. Before you leave, do you mind if I, uh, would you grab that blue sweater that you loaned me before? I really want to um, pour that again if I can. And I say, sure. And then we start having a conversation and I hang up the phone. And so I can hold up to five, from five to eight things in my working memory at any point in time. What was in my working memory when I entered the kitchen was feed the dog, but that has been pushed out because mm -hmm. now I have, can I borrow the blue sweater? Can I also borrow your shoes? Ooh, I don't really want you borrowing those shoes. You scuffed them up last time. And so I put down the phone, I am in the kitchen and I ask myself the question, why am I here? Mm -hmm. And it's something that happens to us all the time when we open yeah. the refrigerator, right? Like how many people have stood in front yeah. of the refrigerator and said like, oh my God, why am I here? Yeah. And so I just noticed that I don't remember something. I don't know why I'm in the kitchen. And then the other thing that's just happened is that I, um, the other thing that happens is that I have a strategy to figure out why I'm in the kitchen. Yeah. And typically that looks like retracing my steps. Totally. Yeah. I was just going to say that happens to me literally every single day, but now I love how you explained that, which makes me actually feel so much better is that I'll go upstairs to do something. But as I'm going upstairs, I'm also 
making a list of 10 things that I need to do. So I've just replaced that one yes. thing I need. So by the time I get upstairs, I go, what the heck? I know I came upstairs for something, but yes, I always have a strategy to remember. And exactly that. Usually I just go back downstairs and then walk back up and I, and I figured it out. So, yeah. okay. You're that's good because, and the reason why, and for anybody who's listening, who's like, Nikki, relax, you don't have Alzheimer's or dementia is because yeah. I actually do have the gene for Alzheimer's. I've had the genetic test done. Um, and, and I had it done as part of a much bigger DNA panel just for curiosity's sake. Um, and, and so I did find that out. I wasn't scared because I also know all the research, the neuroscience around how to reverse and halt the progression of the disease or the onset of the disease, which we'll get into when we talk about nutrition. Um, okay. So, okay. So let's go back to talking about your husband. So I want to just understand a little bit more about what this must have been like for you and your family as your husband that you're were you you know in the beginning were you just thinking like what's up with you bud like get it together or you know yes because he had a diagnosis but the diagnosis that he had was adult onset ADD that oh. is what the psychiatrist came up with and so here am I with a partner who is not functioning as a partner. Mm -hmm. He's not taking care of like when, when he is with the kids, because I am say, remember I was in grad school. So I'm in grad school, he's taking care of the kids. Uh, or I go out in the evening with one of my girlfriends and I come back and I find that the kids are still up and they're dirty and they haven't had dinner. And I'm like, dude, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> ah! um, I'm starting to notice little dents in the car. Like what's happening with that? Um, he is, uh, not showing up for appointments and in general, just behaving like somebody who just doesn't care a whole lot mm -hmm. about the family. He becomes very narcissistic. It's all about him all the time. And that is not the man I married. So what happened at that point is that I, um, started getting really angry at him. Of course. Like, you know what? Other people have ADD and they take their meds and they get on with life. You have meds. You don't always take them. Why aren't you taking them? Um, people manage this condition. They manage their ADD. You're not managing your ADD and you're not even trying to manage your ADD. So, so were, I the meds, were the meds, sorry to interrupt, but were the meds actually helping at all or no? No, 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 no. because it was the wrong diagnosis. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so um, I was just really frustrated with him, really angry with him. It was a bad scene in our household. The kids were worried, like, what's going on with mom and dad? Are they, because we'd never, we'd never been a couple that argued. We worked yeah. so well together as a couple. And here we were not functioning as a couple. So must have been hard. When it was, it was very hard. And when we got, uh, and I started seeing a therapist, I started seeing a, seeing a therapist because I am not a quitter and I wanted to stay married. I loved my husband. I just didn't like who he was becoming. And so, so, I, so let me just jump in there. Ahead. Cause I'm assuming you go to the therapist, you say, yeah, my husband's got ADD or ADHD. He has his meds. Yes. He's not taking them. You know, like as a therapist, like this is just a midlife crisis. You know, like, I'm assuming they're going to try all of these techniques to help, but without knowing the underlying reason, like do, do any of these work? Right. So I'm seeing the therapist and I am bringing in data points. 
uh, I am seeing this behavior in my husband and um, I am responding in this way, but, but he's, he's uh, responding to my response in a way that doesn't make any sense. What's going on? Um, it was at one, and at this time, my husband and I were seeing together a counselor who works with couples where one or both have ADD. Mm. And I would bring things up in our therapy sessions with, with the group, with the couples counselor. And I would tell him about things that I was seeing that my husband's husband was doing that were insane. Like they, they weren't ADD. And I would say, so this is what I'm seeing. This can't be ADD. And he would say, well, you know, ADD manifests in many unusual ways. And I was like, what's going on? Ah!" So I had, uh, um, at one of the sessions with my therapist, I said, okay, we are going to have a whiteboard moment. And I'm going to outline for you all of the things that I have seen since the last time you and I spoke that don't seem to me like they could possibly be ADD. I outlined them and she said, oh my God. She said, I really like, she was the first person who said, maybe there is something physiological that's going on with your husband. Maybe there's something that's broken. I will share with you, by the way, that prior to this, when my husband, um, two, three years before he got a diagnosis, um, he dropped out of grad school. So he, he was pursuing a PhD in computer science. He had worked as a software engineer for years and he decided to go back to school. So he working as on his PhD was really struggling and really not doing well. And in fact, in the end, wound up dropping out of the program because he just couldn't do it. He went back to work as a software engineer and he got fired. Yeah. So this was just like, and he was a rock star like software big. engineer. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he went to a neuro uh, psych at the time who did a full evaluation. And what they found is that there were these really strange um, uh, discrepancies between what he could do and what he couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, with, with ADD, it could be that you see this and it could be that you were able to mask it all of these years, but as you're aging, and so he's like 44 now, right? But as you're aging, you're not able to mask any longer. Hmm. Okay. He also had an MRI at this point mm. and the doctor looked at the MRI. And when, if you are, uh, my impression is that a neurologist who is not used to looking at brains with dementia is more looking for something that is there that shouldn't be like a tumor yeah. than something that isn't there that should be like the appropriate brain mass, for instance. And so the neurologist came out of the office after looking at my brother, my husband's scan, and he put his hand on my husband's shoulder. And he said, well, buddy, what all I can say is it sucks to be you because your brain is completely normal. So here we are then three years later, I'm with this therapist. And I feel like we've done due diligence. I feel like we looked at potential brain issues and nothing came up. She sent us to a psychiatrist who got it. Mm. And that psychiatrist met with me and my husband. And then she called me up and she said, I need to meet just with you. And so meeting just with me, she went down this list of things that could potentially be the problem. And one by one, we started ticking off those things. And at the bottom of the list 
the big baddie at the bottom of the list was frontotemporal dementia. Mm -hmm. And as we ticked everything else off the list, one of which was a sleep study, which we'll talk more about, um, we landed at the diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia. We became um, uh, part of a study that was being conducted out of the University uh, of California in San Francisco. They have a great research center there about frontotemporal dementia. They looked at the MRI that had been done three years earlier and they just shook their heads. They were like, yeah, it's pretty obvious looking at this that they were not looking for the right thing because we see it. We see it in this scan. And that that happens. Yeah, that's so frustrating. And that does, it happened to us with our daughter when uh, she was nine years old and we took her into emergency and she'd been sick for five days. And we had gone to the doctors many times in those five days and they kept sending us home and it's because she doesn't present with the same symptoms. So this is the challenge is when you have somebody who comes in who presents with certain symptoms. So they want to test for certain, like you said, test for certain things and find those things. But then that immediately has them hyper-focused in one area and they're not, and they're looking for a pattern. Meanwhile, there's another pattern over here that they can't even see because they haven't told their brains to look at that other pattern. And right. so when that happened in my daughter's case and same thing through an X-ray, they completely missed it. It was there all along. And, you know, in her case, it was meningitis. They could have seen it. They could have found oh. it. And it was, um, and they could have just, you know, if, and it was 17 different doctors that looked at it and said, um, and, and they all came back and they use it as a story in, in the medical clinic to say, hey, listen, you know what? listen to the mother, like in your case, listen to the wife, because she's been logging all the symptoms, but because they are ready. And this is one of the major issues in our medical system, because it is run by human beings and human beings look for patterns. And so we need to disrupt those patterns to be able to get them to see a bigger picture and to also see the things that are not there that they weren't programmed to look for. And so, um, and, and I mean, they're trying to teach this in medical, but at the end of the day, we're human being. So there's always going to be that error. Um, so this is incredible that this, this team finally sees it and they're able to come back to you. And is this when they give you, they give you the diagnosis? So, um, the doctor who the psychiatrist who was referred to us by my therapist, um, suggested that we should get a PET scan. Mm -hmm. So positron emission tomography. And that scan is a different way of looking at the brain. So where the MRI is structural, Mm -hmm. the PET scan is looking at how is your brain consuming glucose. And so we are able to see which parts of the brain are active and inactive. And that scan allowed us to see that the part of my husband's brain that was inactive was that frontal lobe. So does that mean it's not consuming glucose anymore? Correct. Okay, so this is really fascinating because from uh, what I teach my clients to and what we were talking about, you know, as they're getting to know each other before the, before the podcast started was the fact that um, with my clients, what we're trying to do is get uptake of glucose in all their cells, increase their mitochondrial count in their cells. Um, and mitochondria, the only way the mitochondria can grow and replicate is by consuming glucose. It's what feeds the Krebs cycle. And then it's what then allows more glu- mitochondria to be created, which allows more energy to be created. And the brain is a mass consumer of glucose. We're supposed to have about 2000 mitochondria per cell um, in the brain. And so this part's really 
really, um, yeah, this part is just very fascinating as it relates to the fact that we are flooding our clients with high amounts of glucose from foods, real foods, fruits, vegetables, sugars, or fruits, vegetables, grains, and legumes. Um, and it's because we're trying to get the uptake of glucose and that's what reverses the diseases. So that's fascinating. This is very fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So then in dementia, the parts of the brain are probably dying off or is that what they say? Would they say they're dying off? I would say so because yeah. you actually, so the brain of somebody who dies from dementia will be up to a third smaller right. than a brain of somebody who didn't die from dementia. So that's yeah. a lot of tissue loss. Yeah. And that makes sense because it's the same in the body as well is that, you know, to reverse chronic disease, we have to reverse the damaged tissue syndrome and yeah. damaged tissue in the brain. It's consuming a lot of unnecessary energy if it doesn't have the mitochondria to take up the sugar. So this completely makes sense. So then what the body does similar to the reproductive system. So my clients that have infertility, like mm -hmm. unexplained infertility for years and years and years, they come into our program. We neutrify high amounts of glucose, right? And then all of a sudden the reproductive system comes back, sperm, um, sperm count increases, the body starts releasing eggs again, the fallopian tubes become unblocked, but it can't do that until we reverse the damaged tissue syndrome. So this is the same thing in the reproductive system, it sounds like, as it's happening in the brain. And the body's smart. It will literally amputate itself to conserve the energy, the glucose that it needs for the heart, for the liver, for those organs you absolutely can't live without. Right. Yeah. So this is very, very fascinating. Okay. So I'm obviously going to dive deeper into the research on this <laughs> after, but this is amazing. So his brain's not taking up the glucose. They do this PET scan. They can now actually see it. Right. They see what the problem is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so at this point, you don't have a background in any of this. This is all brand new to you and your family. And, totally and what's the prognosis for somebody who's at that age getting this diagnosis? Yeah. So the, if you look online, what you will see is that the average number of years that somebody lives beyond diagnosis with this disease is seven years. Wow. And in fact, I remember the day that my husband read that online and he came in just stricken and he said, I'm going to be dead in seven years. But, you know, as the disease progressed, he started talking about the things that he was going to do when he's an old man. And oh. so he kind of like let go of that. And I would say that the other big letting go um, that took place when we got his diagnosis is that I let go of my anger. Just, mm -hmm. it was just, it was like, we got the diagnosis and it was almost like I felt it just whoosh, all of the anger. And, and I was so this is the importance of getting an earlier diagnosis, right? Is that um, instead of anger, I would say that the anger was initially replaced with sadness. Mm -hmm. And I would rather have sadness in my body than anger any day. It's oh, such a toxic, you. such a toxic emotion. Um, it is. And, and sadness is often the underlying emotion to anger once we can recognize that we're angry, right? Then we know yeah. we go, oh, we're angry because I'm sad because there's often a loss of something, right? Yeah. And yeah. Then, then we can empathize with that and you can empathize with your husband and he yep. can empathize with you and yeah, and your children. Yeah, I see that. compassion comes in. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So here you are now, you are the glue that's holding the family together. You get this diagnosis, you have seven years ahead, um, you know, and, and what do you do as a mother, as a wife, as a human 
tell me about that. Cause I know that it basically was the trajectory for where you are today. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, for the first year or so, um, I just tried to learn what I could about the disease, tried to learn what I could about the trajectory. Um, I, because doctors won't really say you've got seven years, what they'll say is, we don't know. Yeah. Because I have met, I met a woman a couple of years ago. So my husband passed away, by the way, in 2019. Um, I met a woman last year who got her diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia the same year that my husband did. She's doing great. Mm. So the way that it manifests in people is different. And so appropriately, doctors don't tell you that you have seven years. And by the way, it was seven years. My husband oh. died seven years after his diagnosis. But anyway, yeah. um, so what I did is basically just try to manage, like just try to keep it going. Thankfully, we had savings. So I didn't have to immediately run out and get a job. But there were a lot of a lot of things that we had to do differently. So we lived in a lovely home at the end of a dead end road on 10 acres in a pretty rural area. My husband had to give up driving and I recognized that I, we can't live here. Like we cannot live at the end of a dead end road. The other thing that was true at that time is that my kids, um, we were not in a very good school district. So my kids both went to private school. I couldn't keep paying for private school yeah. because now neither of us had an income. We're living off of savings. So we needed to move so that my husband could walk places since he could no longer drive. We needed to move so that my kids could now go to different schools. We're in a school district that was uh, better than the one that we had chosen to live in. And we needed to move because I needed to have closer access to potential employment. Yeah. So when you look at the list of all of the things that could potentially cause um, strife in one's life, right? Like getting a diagnosis of a disease is huge. Yeah. Moving is huge. huge. Changing schools, losing your job, right? Starting yeah. a job. So all of these things are happening at one time. And it was, um, it was pretty, it was pretty massive. Yeah, so massive. I would say that um, I look back on that time and I am incredibly grateful to still be here. You know, the, mm -hmm. the number of care partners who get sick or die before the person that they're caring for is pretty staggering. Is. And I was aware of those statistics. So my job, as I saw it, was to keep myself and the rest of the family as healthy as possible so that we could hopefully pop out the other end of this yeah. thing. So that's, that's what I was all about. Is that's, trying to and that's so help. important. Yeah, that is, that's huge for everybody that's listening to this. Um, and unfortunately, it's often the caregivers that are not really addressed, you know, they, they don't think about supporting the caregiver, they're constantly thinking about supporting the individual, the patient who's sick. And this so true. Yeah, and it's important that caregivers set themselves up um, to have somebody support them, whether it's help making meals and helping clean yeah. and helping doing everything, because a, you can't do it all by yourself and you need to recuperate. You need to sleep well, you need, and it's a lot of emotional stress. It's a lot of physical 
stress. And so you need to build up this resiliency around you internally. So health-wise nutrients, but externally as well, have those systems in place. Um, And it's really good that you knew that because I can imagine if you didn't know that you might not have popped out the other end. Well, and you know what, let's talk for a minute about the systems that one should put in place. Yeah. So um, I know plenty of people who once a diagnosis of dementia has been received, they go dark, they go quiet, and they don't want to tell anybody Mm. because it's kind of embarrassing that I can't do the things that I once was able to do and that I'm going to get worse. Hiding your diagnosis is on my list of like the worst things you can do. Yeah. Um, so one of the first things that I did was uh, allow myself to be swooped into a support group. Okay. Oh, so one of my dear friends who was part of my writing community um, had received a diagnosis for his wife of Alzheimer's disease about a year earlier. And he afterwards, once we got our diagnosis, he said, you know, I'd really been wondering, you were talking about these things that your husband was doing. And it just, I thought, geez, God, could it possibly be dementia? Anyway, he said, look, you need to get into a support group pronto. I did that. And I would say that for all people who are in the position of getting a dementia diagnosis, getting into a support group is mission critical. These days, there are also support groups for um, the person living with dementia. And so that is also something I would highly recommend. Also, one of the first things that I did is um, I sent out an email and I sent this email to everybody on my list and everybody on my husband's list. And there were two reasons that I sent out these emails. One was because I wanted to clear my husband's good name. Mm -hmm. For the past six years, he'd been acting atrociously. And he had burned a lot of bridges. And there were a lot of people who just had drawn the conclusion that for whatever reason, my husband had turned into a jerk. Yeah. Especially the people who he worked with, pardon me, who were like, whatever happened to this guy, you know, he had been such a rock star. And now like he can't even code. And he makes poor decisions. And he says things that are really out of line in meetings. And so he'd gotten this horrible reputation. I wanted to clear his good name. I also wanted to let the world know that we had this diagnosis in our family and that we needed help. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I discovered is that the people who I thought for sure were going to be there to help us carry through this process, um, in many cases weren't. Yeah. And people who I had never thought would be there for us were there, the people who I call the outliers. And so by sending this email to everybody we knew, whether or not they were our friends or our acquaintances or people who we had had very few dealings with, by reaching out to that huge group, I was able to put together a team of people who were able to support us. And that really carried us through those first couple of years. I love that you brought that up. That's huge, huge, huge. It's the first thing we do as well for any of my clients that are doing the orthomolecular um, nutritional therapy that I teach is that A, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. Plus you're alone because you are not consuming the same foods as everybody else. Everybody else is eating burgers, pizzas, beer, you know, everything, chips, and you're eating 
food, healthy, healthy food. Plus it takes a lot of energy to create that when you don't have energy. And the thing that I've seen over and over again is exactly what you said. So the, usually my clients will say, well, I don't have any family that's close by that can help or that would help. And then the second thing, uh, or, and then what I say to them is say, no problem. Let's go put a job posting up at your local church or your local rec center, or it doesn't yes. matter where. And it's amazing what happens. People love helping people. And people come out of the woodwork, people who love to cook, people who just love to read to somebody like clean. It's so cool to see this happen because we actually live in a world of really beautiful, kind people and who are just looking for somebody to to share the world with, to share their experiences with, to share their talents and gifts with. So let them do that. But we do live in a society now where I think we're afraid to ask for help or we think nobody's going to want to help us. But we got to get over that because it's amazing who is out there. So I love that you shared that story because it, it's such a beautiful story. And it just, oh my gosh, it warms my heart. And it just, yeah, makes me know that the world's yeah. going to be okay. Yeah. You know, the other thing, just to add to that, um, I we didn't have, we had community in that, yeah, there were the people who were the parents that we went to school with. There were the ladies in my book club. You know, there were the people who were part of my writing group. Um, one of the things that I've really tried to impress upon my kids um, since this has happened is the importance of having a spiritual community. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether that is a, a church group or um, in, in my case, I uh, have, uh, I, I meditate and mm -hmm. there are the people who are part of my, my zen community you know my sangha yeah. one of my sons is now um has embraced quakerism and he goes to a quaker community my other son is looking at possibly maybe um doing uh unitarian becoming unitarian That's and awesome. like and what i have found being a part of this kind of a community that is so intentional is that when one person in the community needs help the whole community is there. And I think, man, I wish we'd had some kind of a community like that before yeah. we got a dementia diagnosis. And, and you so can have that. You can have can. that. You can yeah. have it. And the part about that, the what you're talking about is like, if anybody has read the Blue Zones literature if, or watched the TED Talk or read the book, if anybody has read, um, oh my gosh, Kelly... Uh, oh, she's a PhD who wrote a book on um, oh radical called Radical Remission. And it, it doesn't matter how many books I've written on this, how much research is done. There is always one component to either reversing a disease or healing from something or getting through something is you have a spiritual community. It's there. They, yep. And some of these communities, like in the Blue Zones, people are the, the families create the community for their newborn child. So they actually say, okay, this baby and this baby and this baby and this baby are going to be together for life. And they actually raise those children and their families together to support each other because they know the importance of having that spiritual community to support yeah. each other through all the phases of life. And so it's actually yeah created like structurally intentionally created and i'm like so if they can create intentional communities we can create intentional communities we in the west yes and i think so especially important. if you like a situation like ours i'm from i live in the seattle area but i'm from connecticut my husband was from rhode island 
we met in the Seattle area. None of our family is out here. Exactly. Yeah. And so the big, I thought, okay, okay, okay. So where are we going to, where are we going to live? We can't live in the, at the end of a dead end road. Yeah. Do I find a house here or do I go to Connecticut? Right. Or do I go to Rhode Island? Like, where do I go? Should I be with family or should I be with my built community? Yeah. And I chose to stay here. And I believe that we made the right choice. I thought it was more important for the kids to stay in a community of, as you just described, the people who we knew because they didn't know their family that well. And also it's not like my family lived next door to each other. So if we had lived with my sister near my sister, I would have been an hour's drive from any other relatives. So I thought, no. We should stay here where I at least have a community of friends. Yeah. Built yeah. built community is really important. And I always say, you know, we you're born into a family, but you actually get to then choose your your second family. And that chosen sure. second family is often the ones, and not to say anything about the that your your immediate family that you were born into, you know, that we all have our ups and downs with them, but it's that chosen community that can really get you a long way. And yeah. and we have the internet now, so we can create that. Like we can just yes. go onto Facebook community, be like, hey, everyone, I'm building a community <laughs> of knitters or of dementia supporters, or, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter what it is. The world is your oyster. So go ahead yes. and do it. Yeah, that is beautiful. And you teach, um, let me just jump. I want to just make sure I'm getting this right. You also, it's called Aegis Living. You teach individuals who are caring or talk about this a little bit. Cause I think this is really important. I've got a bunch of different like places that I spend my time. Right. And so one of them, so my husband, um, within, uh, a year and a half, um, I could no longer care for him at home. Mm. And it was because his behaviors had become so, so damaging that my kids were really suffering. And my husband's doctor, my kids were both in therapy. I was in therapy. All of the therapists, all of the doctors were like, look, either he needs to leave the house or the kids do. Mm-hmm. And so he wound up moving to a care community and it was uh, with this group called Aegis Living. Okay. And so he lived in one of their care communities. He then moved to another one of their care communities. And then he moved into something called an adult family home. And I could talk for hours about all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, there was much that I liked about the community that he lived in the first one, but there was a lot that I didn't like. There were some skills that I felt were lacking in the, within the caregivers and many of them were wonderful, but there were also some things that I saw that I didn't like so well. Mm -hmm. So, um, my husband's living in a care community. I'm starting to, um, figure out what is my place going to be in the world. I'm starting to recognize that I need to do some skill building. So I, and I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm kind of, no, no, this is good. Okay. So I started working with a woman by the name of Tipa Snow. And if any of your uh, listeners out there are living with dementia, they probably already know about her. And if they don't, they should. Okay. So Tipa is spelled T-E-E-P-A last name is Snow, and her organization is called Positive Approach to Care. Mm. I became certified, and she teaches hands-on methods for supporting people living with cognitive decline. Um, And she also teaches um, appropriate communication skills when supporting a person with dementia. So I became certified by TIPA 
to uh, as a consultant and as a coach and as um, a teacher, as a trainer. And it was my hope as I was thinking about career, okay, I love to teach. And when I taught previously, I taught about technology because I was an expert. And I thought, but right now, like, I'm not an expert in anything. And I thought, wow, but you know what? I am becoming an expert. <laughs> I know a lot about dementia. And so I decided to do a deep dive and just learn everything that I could. And my first stop was doing these certification classes with Tipa Snow. So I approached this community that my husband used to live in. And I said, you know, I could really help you. I could teach these skills to your staff. And they said, ah, what we really need is somebody who can teach the course that has been mandated by the state of Washington for all professional care partners who work in long-term care. It's a full day dementia course. Would you be willing to get certified in that class? Wow. And I said, yes, I would. This could possibly be a career for me is that I could get these certifications and teach those classes. So I became certified. And what I figured out is, ooh, I can sneak in the Tipa Snow stuff. Right. And so I now teach a class that is the state mandated curriculum, but I teach it with a very Tipa Snow bent. Okay, nice. I like that. I like that. And now, now when now I know in every system, there are going to be things that are wonderful. And then there are going to be things that are not wonderful. My, uh, one of my best friends, her, her mom has dementia and she's in a long-term care facility. And I mean, and she's went in there, I think just before COVID then had to navigate the whole COVID realm, which was such a mm -hmm. wild situation um, to see who could come and who could go and who wasn't allowed in. And, you mm -hmm. know, and it was just unbelievable what so many of these individuals who have dementia and Alzheimer's had to endure because if one person got COVID, they were like literally put in a hazmat suit, their walls were taped off, and then their relatives couldn't see them. And then everybody else on the floor were locked in their rooms, basically. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare um and your husband passed away just prior to that which in a, did. a, in a lot of ways blessing of sorts right i'm so yes. glad not yeah. have to endure that exactly but with but what i love about you is that i mean obviously you already have this tech mind you already have an analytical critical mind and so you went in there and you're like i need to do something about this which is not what most people do i would say so I think that this is a, a rare gift that you have, which has brought many gifts to so many other people. So I just have to thank you for being one oh, of those people who are like, you know what? I can't just sit back and watch the things that are not okay. I want to support and make it better because everything can always be made a little bit better. I am a fixer by nature. Yes. Yeah. And when I see a problem, I, I definitely um, dive in. Yeah, no, that that's, that's really huge. Yeah, especially because my girlfriend says some people just literally come twice a year, and they're just like, Oh, they're doing great. They've, they're getting food, and they're getting their meds. Right. Um, and then that's it. And then they leave. So one of the yeah. questions I do have to ask you when your husband was diagnosed, was he given medications? And did any of those medications help? Yeah. Like what is? He, well, he wasn't given medications. Um, there were some medications that he was still on that were sort of vestige medications from when he had adult onset ADD. Mm -hmm. um, so we gradually weaned him off of those medications. Um, he did take uh, trazodone for sleep. Um, and he eventually um, at, at one point was given 
a medication to try and soothe his behaviors. I am, um, <laughs> I recognize that oftentimes there gets to be a point where um, somebody's dementia is so unmanageable that medication is used, it is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, I really believe strongly that it's a solution of last resort. Okay. So there are medications that are dementia meds, right? Like we know people who are on Nemenda and so on. And they are medications that are specifically for dementia. And the intention, they work with the acetylcholine system. Mm -hmm. And the intention is to help somebody be a little bit sharper than they might otherwise be. Um, and there is some thought that it also might slow down progression a bit. Mm -hmm. My husband was never put on any of those medications because we didn't see the value in those medications for him. Yeah. Um, I uh, believe very strongly, and the thing that I really push in the classes that I teach, that there is often a behavioral adjust, an adjustment that we can make that helps uh, in the way that we deliver care mm -hmm. that will make it so that we can solve problems without antipsychotic meds. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes people do wind up on antipsychotics. So a big part of the work that I do when I'm teaching is to try and um, transmit those skills yeah. that allow somebody to be, be with a person in a way that avoids the use of antipsychotics. Right. And I, and I want to learn a little bit more about that as well. So with the work that you're doing with Aegis Living, you are actually teaching the caregivers, right, that are, that are working the long-term care, um, professional care partners. Is that what you call them? Professional Correct. Care? Okay. That are supporting, but we're entering now, it's been predicted by many, many medical communities that one in one people will have dementia by the time, um, will get diagnosed with dementia by the time we hit 2030. That's eight years away. Mm -hmm. And so that's one in one people. So it's not just the individuals who are caring for the people in the long-term care facilities that need this training, but it's actually also the the, the parents, the partners, the lovers, the siblings. Care partners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and is this training for them as well? Or is it strictly just for the professionals working in the long-term care facilities? That's a great question. So the, the first teaching that I did was um, I recognized that a lot of people didn't know how to be with people who, a lot of family members, right? Didn't know how to be with people who are living with mm -hmm. dementia. And so what happened is by being inappropriate or being by not knowing how to be with people who are living with dementia, we get into arguments, we cause strife, we increase anxiety on, on both the part of the person living with dementia and the person who, who um, has dementia, the person who's caring for them. And so I put together a, um, a program which is called How to Be Friends with People Living with Dementia. And I talked to my local library and I said, I would like to come in like no pay. I just want to be able to offer this. Mm. And so I now deliver that lecture. Um, in fact, tomorrow night, I'll be doing that at a long-term care community here in the Seattle area. Great. And my goal in delivering that lecture is simply to help family members understand that there are better ways and worse ways to exist with a person with dementia, yeah. ways that support both you and the person who you are providing care for. So the classes that I'm teaching 
I am teaching to professional care partners, but as a side, I still do these lectures that are intended for family members. Right. And I imagine that this helps a lot with the turnover rate of these professionals, because we were chatting earlier about how there's such a huge turnover rate. You know, um, I would like to say that it helps. I, I think that certainly having training yeah. helps people feel more competent. And um, if the care that I'm delivering is causing less anxiety for the person living with dementia, mm -hmm. then that's causing less anxiety for me as the care partner. So yeah. a better skilled care partner is going to improve outcomes yeah. for, for all, all around. That said, there are so many other reasons why there is um, high staff turnover. And this is a, I mean, this is a huge problem because yeah. as we talk about, right, like right now there's like six point whatever million people living in the United States with dementia, but it's expected to be 14 million by 2050. As the number of people living with dementia is getting bigger and bigger, the pool of people available to care for those people yeah. is getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. And so how do we do this? How do we find a way to help um, create situations where care um, happens more smoothly, where yeah. there's less turnover? And I mean, that it's a, it's a huge topic. Yeah. And so I, I like, where, where do we start, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I know we'll talk a little bit about the work that I'm doing with Zinnia TV, but, but part of that work is about helping um, care partners and people who are, who are receiving care have better connections so that anxiety is reduced and so care becomes less of a burden, right? We want to ease the burden on care partners. Um, I think that with the staffing piece, um, I think that there's a, there's a lot. Um, and I, in fact, I, with the, the folks at Aegis, I did a call with them last week because they're looking specifically about like, what do we do about this staff turnover piece? Yeah. And um, so I know that what some organizations are doing is, okay, improving pay, improving health benefits, um, improving um, the hours, um, having people work four days a week instead of five days a week, but paying them for five days a week. Yeah. Um, they're doing things like bringing in childcare so that I can bring my kids to work with me. Um, doing things, um, but, but, but some of the other things that I think about, um, if I may, right? Like, like uh, one of my partners at Zinnia TV, he was like, why don't we have some kind of a system, which I think is quite brilliant, where if I am delivering care that as a, as a paid care partner, that I'm actually getting credits toward when I myself might need care. Yeah, that's a really like, great idea. Right? Yeah. Like what if Ooh. every for every year that I work at this care community um, that they vest so that after I've been there for six years, which is going to make me want to stay there for yeah. six years, after I've been there for six years, that I have now earned a free year of care for myself or somebody I love. You know, yeah. something like that could possibly be an incentive. I also think a lot about, um, this is a topic that I've been talking about a lot lately, uh, at Aegis, there's basically three types of, of care, professional caregivers. One is that they, they have a lot of students 
there are people who are going on eventually to be nurses, doctors, whatever. Mm-hmm. And part of their requirement is that they need to do this kind of care. So they're only going to be there for a year. Right. There's going to be staff turnover, but they're really, really good at what they do. But they're a little unreliable. If their family is going on vacation, they're going on vacation. Yeah. If their coursework is too, if their course load is, is high, they're going to reduce the number of hours that they work. So that, that's one group of students that they have. Another group of students, or, or sorry, of um, care partners. Another group of care partners that they have are people who are older with big hearts. Right. They just love this work and it's what they want to do. Okay. That's my mom. My mom was, yeah, a long-term care aide and she was amazing at her job and she, yeah. Yeah, she handled it so well. And the third is people who are non-native English speakers who are here from other countries Mm -hmm. and it's the best job they can get. Right. And in some cases, they are people who might be a nurse in their country, but then they're here and they're working below what they are at a skill level that is below what they are, what they were trained for. Yeah. Um, I think that there is lack of... um, I think that there is ignorance on the part of people who are managing that workforce, a lack of intelligence about cultural appropriateness, um, about cultural need. I think that we really need to bump up um, as as the people who are um, operating these communities, Mm -hmm. we really need to bump up our um, understanding of where our workforce is coming from yeah. and what they need um, to feel respected, what they need to feel um, proud of the work that they're doing. So I think that there's a lot of work that can be done around how we educate. Yeah, we need to educate care providers, but we need to educate the people who have hired those care providers yeah. about how to treat them with dignity and respect. Yeah. Yeah, that'll go a long way. And even learning from them as well, because a lot of these individuals come from communities where they don't have long-term care homes. Like they care for the aging population within the community, within the homes, within the family. You know, like there was, you know, most people on this podcast know I was born in a tiny village in Africa, uh, no electricity or no running water to this day. And there's no long like everyone cares for everybody right until the day they die. And so there's a lot of learning um, to be gathered from that. Yes, yes, there really, really is. As opposed to we'll teach you how to do it here in Canada, you know, or the United States. Right. One question I have about this is, you know, you and I, you know, we are privileged women living in North America um, how does one who is not as privileged, whether it comes to income, you know, um, how do they manage having a family member and loved one with dementia? Like, the, I know the cost of my, for my girlfriend to take care of her mom, it's about $7,000 a month. That's how much they're paying for the long-term oh, yeah. care facility. Like, is this covered by the state? Who covers this? No. So I was paying $10,400 a month for my husband's care when he was living in that um, long-term care community. And the, the, right, the plot thickens. Um, what, when I teach those classes, by the way, what I really stress to the professional care partners who I'm teaching is, you guys, the people who you're supporting are like the, you know, n- not everybody can come here. In fact, yeah. most people can't. Because one of the things also, 
when we talk about, I know I'm going in like five directions right no, this now, is good. but this is good. Um, one of the things that we talk about is, um, is uh, brain resilience, right? And we talk about the fact that a person, uh, I can have two people, one with a third grade education and one with a PhD, and they can have exactly the same amount of stuff that causes dementia going on in their brains. And the person with the PhD is going to be a lot less impacted than the person with the third grade education. And why is that? Well, it's a raw materials game. And the more, because if I'm losing neurons, right? The, and losing brain matter, the, the more um, that I have to lose, right? The less impacted I will be longer. And so my students say, yeah, but you know what? A lot of the people who are living in our communities are really rich people. And there are people who had great jobs and there are people who had PhDs and there are people who are really, really smart and they still got dementia. Yeah, it's not that really smart people don't get dementia. Yeah. It's just that it might take longer for their symptoms to kick in because they were able to continue functioning yeah. um, despite the stuff that was going on in their brain because their brain could find more pathways to yeah. continue functioning. Exactly. Yeah, that's an important anyway, yeah, distinction to make for sure. So I'm not a really rich person. I had savings and I had a husband who I could not take care of at home any longer. Yeah. Um, we searched to find a place for that would take him. And this particular ages community had just opened. They had a lot of beds. It was way outside of what I could afford, but we decided to go there for the sake of keeping my kids alive. Right. Um, but I couldn't keep him there for a long time. I needed to um, move him to a community that I could afford. And I needed him to move to a community that would ultimately take Medicaid. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, he wasn't eligible. Well, the, the ages communities, like most of these um, sort of highfalutin, really nice care communities, they don't take Medicaid. But adult family homes here in the state of Washington, mm -hmm. many of them do take Medicaid. But I needed my husband to qualify for Medicaid. And the way that we did that was that we got a divorce. Oh, wow. So we actually divorced so that we could do a lopsided mm -hmm. asset allocation so that he was essentially turned into a pauper so that he could get Medicaid. Wow. And then working with attorneys, we were able to set up a trust so that my alimony payments went into a trust that then got routed to the care community right. to pay his fees. Wow. So this is, I mean, you know, and I'm sitting here, I'm 47 years old, you know, right around the age where your husband was diagnosed. And, yeah. you know, and these are the things that, you know, we're just thinking about like how to pay our mortgage every month, let alone like trying to think about how to save $10,000 a month for when one of us may or may not get right. dementia. Um, and how does that work for an individual who has dementia and then you need to go through the legal system to get divorced? Like, do they consider him of sound mind to be able to make that decision or is this something that no, everybody should go out and get divorced right now because we're gonna no. have like so you know in retrospect um it wasn't the soundest um financial decision because the divorce costs so much money right because then you need to hire a guardian ad litem to act on his behalf because he's yeah. got dementia so oh it's messy messy messy, messy. and I spent a long time just talking about that but yeah. what brought me here was the question that you had asked of like but what about people who can't afford to go to yeah. ages 
or who can't afford, like even the adult family home was $7,000 a month, but Medicaid was paying for, for part of that. Right. And that's a lot of money for people who are low income, like literally living paycheck to paycheck. Right. So we also have to look at things like here in Washington state, if I can remember the statistics right now, it's like 24%, I think, of people who are living with mid-stage dementia live by themselves. And 17% of people with later stage dementia live by themselves. Right. And so what, how are those people going to afford to pay for care at some point? Um, And so the answer is that they, they can't. And so people wind up taking care. This is what, so we have care partners, you know, like a woman in her, who's 82, who's taking care of her 85 year old husband who weighs 250 pounds and she weighs 112 pounds. And yet she's getting him up off the toilet and she's carrying him into the bedroom and she dies before he does because she completely burns out because she cannot afford to put him in care or families who do they're in my support group. Um, once my husband was placed in care, wow, my stress level really went down. The stress level in my house went down, but there was another woman who was in the, in my support group whose kids were taking care of their dad because they couldn't afford to put him into care. How lucky was I? Yeah. We had savings that we could at least go that route. And how lucky am I that I am um, resourceful. I'm smart. I was able to come up with solutions. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a a bad scene. It's a bad, well, that's our whole entire medical system is, you know, we spend trillions of dollars every single year managing reversible chronic degenerative diseases, which Mm -hmm. dementia and Alzheimer's is actually classified as that now, according to, you know, neuroscientists like the Shirzai team who wrote, who wrote the Alzheimer's solution, who said that, you know, that there will never be a drug that like, reverses these conditions stop these it'll maybe create a delay you know but the outcome is still going to be the same versus if you look at lifestyle so look at the environmental waste that's coming into the body look at how your body processes its own metabolic waste and ultimately nutrify the body so that the body has the nutrients it needs to do what it needs to do and you will die of natural causes before dying of alzheimer's and dementia right but i want to get back to uh, and, and, but anyway, just talking about that and how we have this broken system where we're spending more time, for example, managing the side effects of the caregivers now and what they have to go through than if we just literally went into prevention, preventative health for, right. for all individuals. But yeah. anyway, that's a much, that's a big, huge conversation. You know, we've <laughs> known $1 spent on preventative health saves thousands of dollars in the long run. But anyway, yeah. what I, so here, okay. And you're at the university of Waterloo. You are Washington. Oh, university of Washington. Oh, oh my gosh. University <laughs> of Washington. I wrote Washington. I said Waterloo. <laughs> okay. That's uh, I've been talking all day since eight o'clock AM. Um, so university of Washington providing education to frontline care providers. You are with Aegis Living. You are teaching uh, long-term professional care partners how to support individuals who have dementia. Let's talk about Zinnia TV. Sure. Because this is such a very cool concept. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to one of your business partners, um, Berenice, and she told me about this. I got to explore your platform. 
It's so smart. So smart. So please tell me about this and it, where the idea came so from smart. and what it is. Sure. So I'll tell you about the genesis of this and kind of where it has, where we are now. Um, so one of the things that really um, horrified me when my husband was living in long-term care is that he and other residents were basically parked in front of a television all day. And they were watching TV that was completely inappropriate for people who can no longer track a plot, who can no longer track rapidly moving visuals, who could no longer process rapidly moving, you know, uh, different, lots of con um, conflicting audio um, and rapidly moving dialogue, right? We know that by the time a person, even with early stage dementia, that they'll miss about one in every uh, four to five words that's spoken when people are speaking with a normal cadence. And so it starts to like, I don't know, I'm missing a word. I just know that I'm not understanding things yeah. as well anymore. So you take a person with later stages of dementia and you park them in front of a television and they can't process the, the dialogue. Um, they can't tell fact from fiction, you know, so many stories in my own family with my stepdad of him watching TV and like getting really upset because there's a war going on, lady. right? Yeah. Or that when, anyway. Well, um, and, and just to highlight that, I don't even think we talked about that yet. Um, we talked about it in the beginning, but your husband was diagnosed in his forties and then your stepmom and then your stepdad also both got dementia. They did. Yeah. Yep. So you have a lot of experience. With yeah. This. And they had three different kinds of dementia, right? My husband had Alzheimer's disease. Ken had vascular dementia. Carol had all, uh, my husband had frontotemporal. Carol had Alzheimer's disease. So yeah. So, right. ah, and so but, you were seeing, were you seeing the same thing in with all three of them though, their inability to, to process like a lot of noise, a lot of sound, a lot of conversation. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I thought, God, man, why can't there be TV that is like actually created for people who are living with mid to late stage dementia? And so I started doing a bunch of research, calling up researchers. Um, and I found this one paper that was, had been written that was about um, people with long-term care um, watching television and pointing out all of these problems, the things that don't work. And I thought, yeah, but why isn't there something that does work? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find anything. And so that's when I had this idea for Zinnia TV. And so the original intent was how do we create television viewing that is appropriate for people who are living with dementia? Amazing. So that was, right. So I, um, I have my, my uh, iPhone here, can't see it, but I have my iPhone. And one of the things that I can do on my iPhone is that I can um, look at my pictures and I can create a little video of all of the pictures that have a dog in them, for instance. And I thought, you know, that's what I want to be able to do is have something that's baby, basically a bunch of images, maybe with some music. What would that be like for my husband to watch? And so I could create those little videos on my phone. And I thought, you know, there's no commercials. There's no dialogue. I'm playing really nice music. Could I create that? And so, uh, and how could I create that? So I act, so as we mentioned earlier, my background is actually in technology. So I called some of my tech folks, um, including a friend who, who uh, used to work at Apple. And I explained what I was trying to do. And I said, you know, Apple has this feature on their iPhone to create these movies. Do we know anybody who has worked on that project? And so he said, oh, I think you might want to talk to this guy, Frank Lee. And so he gave me Frank Lee's phone number. I called Frank out of the blue. 
Um, Hi, my name is Allison Schreier. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. And I told him about my husband and about my idea. And he got so excited. And he said, did David tell you what I did with the Memories Project? And I said, no, I don't think he, he didn't really know what you did. And he said, I was the designer. What? And he said, I love this idea. I recently left Apple. I have time on my hands. I want to do this. Wow. And so Frank and I then built a team. Berenice joined us as our lead content person. Um, Bill uh, Unyowski joined us, who is um, the, the biz guy. And we built this product. And so Zinnia TV is now a library of about 160 videos that are accessible through a browser, although we are in the process right now of turning them into turning it into an app. So by the end of the summer, we will actually have an app that runs on iPhones, iPads, Apple TV, Roku, so that people can use Zinnia TV from lots of different um, devices. Wow. So we never, it was never my intention to have an alternative television program that people watch all day. Nobody should watch TV all day. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that if you're going to have somebody sit and watch something, maybe Zinnia TV is something that would be less um, in a, l- less offensive. Um, we've since really come a long way with understanding the benefits of Zinnia TV so that um, for instance, we have a channel which is called the all day channel, which has lots of, it has the way that our system is set up is that we have these beautiful little images. Um, if it's a, a video about birds, there's, a pic, there's an image of a bird, an image of a flower, an image of somebody fishing. Long-term care providers who don't necessarily know a resident that they're supporting can bring up that screen and the resident could, for instance, point to the fish one. And so they now know a little bit about that resident that they didn't know previously. So Zinnia TV is a way for people who don't know each other to create connection. It also creates connection through conversation. And this is something that, so we have long-term care communities using Zinnia TV. It's in hospitals, family care partners use it. We have nonprofit organizations using it who provide companion care. Um, and they use it both virtually, like during COVID, a lot of people used Zinnia TV over Zoom. Wow. Or family members can use it so that I can, for instance, be sitting with my sweetheart um, and uh, show him a video of dogs. And I can at any point pause it and say, wow, that dog looks, looks a lot like Sam. Yeah, and exactly. So have a conversation about something that um, is is um, meaningful to both of us. We have also created lots of activity activity videos. So somebody might watch the video called dog dogs or the video called puppies. Each video is only about ten minutes long. But then we also have a video called name that dog breed. And so we can watch together and on the screen because uh, we are very responsive to what people tell us they want to see. And a number of people said, you know, I'd actually like to see captions at the bottom of the screen because my husband can still read. Right. And it makes him feel accomplished. Yeah. And so now we have things like name that dog breed. Um, we have a video about that asks a question about shoes. We have um, videos that are all different kinds of trivia. Um, name that exotic animal. Um, And so it 
creates this um, opportunity for people to engage on that level. We also have things like poems where mm -hmm. we will show the words to the poem. We show appropriate scenery that goes along with the poem. And in a very slow cadence, somebody reads the poem. And the person living with dementia, if they are still able to read, could read along. Um, we also have videos that are specifically intended to help with compliance around activities of daily living. I so, think this one is really, really important because, um, and I know that Berenice was talking about this. So if you can just um, really elaborate on this part, because I think this is a huge learning opportunity for people. Absolutely. So <laughs> for instance, it is, um, it, dehydration is a huge problem yeah. for people who are living in long-term care, people with dementia in general, because I don't really remember that I had a drink of water. Yeah. And then when you offer me a drink of water, I may not really want a drink of water. Um, and so we have a video which is called, uh, let's, let's get hydrated. And, um, and that video is lovely music. It shows a scene of somebody drinking water. And then it shows a scene of somebody pouring water into a pitcher. It shows a scene of a little boy drinking water out of the faucet, a scene of a dog drinking water, a kitty cat drinking water. And what we find is that if somebody watches that video for a couple of minutes, we then offer them a drink of water and they are more likely to drink the water. That's yeah, that's brilliant. I just drank my water because right. I need to be reminded to drink yeah. water. We have the app on our phone that tell us drink eight glasses of water yes. yeah go exercise do all of that so that right. yeah and that is incredible because that that prior suggestion makes it easier on the caregiver so they don't have to wrestle literally wrestle with right. the individual to try and get them to drink the water they've Absolutely. been already yeah it's like a prompt which is so brilliant there's a part that's um interesting about all of this is that I just keep thinking about children's television you know so we yes. have children appropriate television where the scenes are slower the music is friendlier uh you know it, it allows they, they they do talk slower they get you to repeat words like ba 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 you know and so i mean it yeah. is the same thing in in reverse almost i mean it's exactly the same thing as we're aging and we get cognitive decline is we do end up like a toddler in so many ways and so it makes sense to have appropriate television but for adults and what's yeah. nice I keep thinking about I'm imagining too how this allows the that co-creation of the experience between the grandchildren and the individual oh lady. my gosh it totally does we get we get uh wonderful testimonials from people yeah. but testimonials being like wow one of my mom's favorite activities is that our niece comes over and she sits and watches the videos with her totally and that's like this fabulous so and beautiful because they get so, each other too <laughs> yes, yes yes um and uh we as i mentioned we're working with um some hospitals now and we're working with an organization that that um licenses videos to hospitals and they have asked us to um, provide a set of videos that are for their pediatric patients mm. and so right to your point uh, duh, of course yeah. a lot of this makes so much sense and so yeah. we're looking at also um creating videos that are specifically for for younger folks but so many of our videos work for young folks yeah Totally. So it's, That's amazing. it's really lovely. And, you know, I think that while we started off 
uh, with the intention that Zinnia TV is specifically intended for people who are living with dementia, the reality is anybody who likes a better view, a, a slowed down, peaceful, gentle, mm -hmm. um, high concept uh, video experience, like it's not just trees and flowers, right? Yeah. I can also watch gardening and I can watch people fly fishing and I can yeah. watch people skiing and I can watch people biking, yeah. but it is done with this cadence that makes it accessible. Yeah. Um, and so it's really appropriate for anybody who um, would benefit from that kind of pacing yeah. and that kind of gentleness. Uh, you know, and I, I think about a friend of mine who uh, had watched Zinnia TV for the first time. And he called me up and he said, so I really, really love Zinnia TV. Does that mean I have dementia? <laughs> no, well, it doesn't. No, and I was just thinking about one thing that I was watching with my daughter not too long ago and she's 15 and she's like, mom, look at this TikTok video. And it was watching people clean their upholstery in their car. And I was like, and like get all the gunk out of everything. And it was just slow moving. There was like orchestrated music. Everything was beautiful. It was before and after. Like it was, but I was laying there thinking about how calm I felt. Like it was so soothing and satisfying. Yeah. And it's so if that can create that. So of course, why wouldn't I watch that versus, you know, Hollywood flicks that are like, leave you agitated and like almost depressed afterwards, you know, from the content, yes. you know, so even as somebody without, you know, cognitive decline, right now like I see that like we see immediately how television affects us on so many in our yes. emotions and affect us not just for in that moment but it stays with us for hours and days after we watch these films well you know so as I mentioned I am a practitioner of Zen Buddhism um, I sit meditation many uh, most most mornings um, and one of the things that we talk about is the importance of consumption. Like what do we consume? And people think of that as food and yeah. beverages, but it's also, what do we take into our minds? Totally. You know, what am I watching that is having a negative impact on my health and my emotions? What games am I playing? What conversations am I engaging in? So anything like we take in, right? We take in totally. in so many different ways and we need to consume mindfully. Yes. No, I like, I really appreciate that you brought that up because that's a skill um, that anybody can, it's a muscle that anybody can develop. It's that ability to be discerning about what you are consuming on all levels, like the quality of your water, your food, your thoughts, your um, television, the news, like what yes. news are you taking in? Um, right. You know, what people are you allowing into your life? Like it really exactly. extends to so many levels. Um, and you're also doing okay. studies, studies now with Zinnia TV. Is that correct? Oh yeah, this is so exciting. Thanks for asking about that. Um, we are. So the University of British Columbia, um, there's a group there called the Idea Lab yes. and IDEA. So the Idea Lab in conjunction with Vancouver General Hospital is doing a two year study to prove out the efficacy of Zinnia TV which is just so exciting, Amazing. really. I'm just thrilled to be working with Dr. Lillian Hung um, is leading the project and she's absolutely amazing. She does a lot of work around simulated presence therapy with dementia, which is the, uh, um, and that, that's, a, that's a whole other topic, but it's something that we actually incorporate into our videos. Um, we've learned from her and use some of that in our, the videos that we do. 
Amazing. Um, yeah. That, yeah, that's incredible. And that's right in my backyard, University of British Columbia and uh, Vancouver General Hospital. So that's amazing. And then one last thing that I want to touch on too, is that as part of the training that you do as well, you said that you also teach about, I mean, after all it is the Eat Real to Heal show. So tell me about the the nutrition program, like it's not necessarily a program, but um, the I, I, I guess the education around nutrition it's that you nutrition teach. Nutrition and dementia. Yeah. So, um, so at the university of Washington, um, which is really like my day job, right? My day job is at the university of Washington, where I work with something called the echo program, echo dementia. And twice a month we have, um, uh, frontline care providers from around Washington state who come together in a virtual setting, like a Zoom room, right, with, with dementia experts. And there is a 20-minute um, didactic, like a deep dive into some aspect of dementia. And then there are case presentations. People talk about what's going on in their work, and they help each other problem solve. And one of the upcoming lectures in that will be specifically about nutrition and dementia. And certainly nutrition is something that comes up all the time when talking to families about um, how can I, um, how do we possibly, or talking to people, sorry, not families, but talking to older folks who are concerned about, well, is there anything that I could be doing to possibly um, keep myself from getting dementia? And so um, I know that we talked earlier, I don't know if we mentioned it while we were doing the podcast, but you and I talked earlier about the fact that we now know that probably 40% of the people who are living with a dementia diagnosis today mm -hmm. have a disease that was probably preventable. And so we are looking more less these days at a dementia cure and more at dementia prevention and at ways to potentially slow down progression through um, these measures that include nutrition. So there is a study that's called um, the, the Lancet publication, L-A-N-C-E-T. Yeah. The Lancet 2020 has uh, this, you could look it up, Lancet 2020 yeah. online, and they have a um, one of the things that they list are all of these preventive measures. Exercise is huge, sleep is huge, and mm -hmm. nutrition is also huge. And so generally what's recommended um, by uh, people who are, helping those who want to try and prevent dementia is that they uh, try and adhere to a mind diet. So everybody has heard about the Mediterranean diet. Um, there's also something called the DASH diet, which is dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And the mind diet is a Mediterranean slash DASH intervention for neurodegenerative delay. That's what mind diet means. And so it combines foods from the Mediterranean and the DASH diets that have been shown to benefit brain health. And so the mind diet is that you are simply supposed to eat more of the 10 foods that the diet encourages you to eat yeah. and eat less of the five foods that the diet recommends that you limit. Yeah. And so the mind diet encourages the consumption of all kinds of vegetables, berries, nuts, 
olive oil, whole grains, fish, beans, maybe some poultry, and maybe like a glass of red wine. Although I will tell you that nobody is encouraged to start drinking wine if they don't already drink wine. No, exactly. And, um, and alcohol is something that we should absolutely try and reduce in our lives to keep yeah. our brains healthy yeah. for a number of reasons. One of them being that it really messes with our sleep. Yeah. But anyway, um, and then the things that we want to limit consumption of are butter and margarine, cheese, red meat, fried foods, and things like pastries and sweets and processed foods yeah. that contain large amount, uh, amounts of saturated fats and trans fats. Mm -hmm. So in, in a nutshell, like that's what the mind diet is about. And what I tell my students is that basically the same things that you would do to not have cancer and to not have hypertension are the things that you do to not have dementia yeah. um, as far as, as exercise goes and, and food, but really trying to stay away from processed foods um, and then sticking with those sort of basic adherence. And I know that you have so much that you can add to that conversation with the work that you do. Yeah, well, yeah. And this is the part that um, despite the fact that I work with thousands of clients and hundreds of chronic degenerative diseases, most people who have a family relative who gets diagnosed with dementia um, or Alzheimer's, then, you know, they've attempted to say like, well, can I, they're usually calling on behalf of a relative mm -hmm. that has been diagnosed. And mm -hmm. I know for the work I do, it's much easier for me to work with the individual themselves who is actually asking for support on nutrition but once somebody's in a long-term care home it's really hard to you know um adjust their diets like they would need basically a full-time caregiver who's making the food bringing it in for them supporting them making sure they're taking the right additional nutrients via supplement so it but gets harder so i haven't worked with i haven't had the opportunity to work with a lot of individuals of with alzheimer's or dementia with the specific right. program i teach but fortunately there are many neuroscientists out there now that understand and the relationship between diet and dementia um, and Alzheimer's. And they are um, actually doing this work and running clinical trials now, which is great. So what we're going to see yeah. in probably the next 10, 15 years is um, definite, well, hopefully the diet changing within like the food meal programs within the long-term care homes. Right yeah. now, I can tell you a lot of it is like you know, fake potato, roast beef, um, you know, pork chops, like it's still the foods that are contributing to the, the further decline, brain decline. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah. I look at, and even at the most, at the, at the most posh care communities, mm -hmm. the diet is not so much based on, at least from what more my, my take on it is that it is really um, a lot of comfort food. Yeah. Right. And it's based on, it's created by dietitians who are trained dietitians, but they're taught more about macronutrients. And so they're taught about making sure that the protein, fat, and yes. carbohydrate intake is there. So it's a bit of potatoes, it's a bit like quite a bit of meat, and it's a bit of this because the theory right. is that as you're aging, you need more protein. But yeah, you know what? Your body can assimilate protein even easier if you actually throw a lot of cooked vegetables. There's a lot of protein, and then there's a lot of a few additional things you can do to make sure that the person has the right amount of protein. And usually it's literally in the form of like this size in the small center of my hand 
that amount of nuts and seeds literally makes up the difference that we need. So we don't need it to come from red meat, pork chops, like the very things that literally create hardening of our arteries and include, you know, reduce glucose uptake in the brain so that you don't get less blood flow, less nutrients. So it's, it's, you know, and, and this is not just in long-term care facilities. I have, you know, kids that I work with that are in oncology at children's hospital that are being fed hot dogs in 2022. Hot dogs to kids with cancer, like what the F people, but again, because they're focusing on the macronutrients and they're focusing on thinking like, well, this is the food that kids will eat. You know what? We got to change that as a society. It's ridiculous because the science is out there. We know that like, for example, the mind diet, we know that it works for prevention. And then we just add a few more things to that. And then it works for reversing these conditions. But that is a whole nother podcast. Um, but yeah, if anybody is out there and, you know, you and I should definitely chat because, um, you're doing studies, we would love to, that's something we're moving into doing more of. I'm just completing my PhD and it's to do, um, studies first with small groups of individuals and then expand it out to larger populations and then hopefully create some policy change at the, you know, federal and provincial levels so that we can get these ridiculous diets that, you know, meal plans that are created for long-term care facilities and hospitals changed. Like that will make a huge difference for sure. So we covered a lot. Um, One of the things that I know, I mean, we need to do another podcast for sure. I definitely want to have you back. Um, I know it's probably going to take some time for the studies to come out of UBC and um, and Vancouver yeah. General Hospital, but would love to have you back on the show with Dr. Lillian Hung as well. She can present a lot of the studies or you can do that. Um, that would be amazing. Um, and how can people find Zinnia TV and also all the other work that you do? <laughs> sure, sure. So. Um... The, the University of Washington work that I do is the University of Washington Memory and Brain Wellness Center is where I work. And on our website, there's a tab for, the, for ECHO, E-C-H-O. And anybody who wants to can go there and watch any of these didactics that have taken place. And there are some brilliant, brilliant lectures. They're really digestible, 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, and you awesome. get a deep dive from experts um, in the field of dementia detection, diagnosis, and support. So that's one thing. Amazing. Zinnia TV, it's, our website is uh, Zinnia, the flower, Z-I-N-N-I-A. And by the way, so I'll finish that first. It's Z-I-N-N-I-A-T-V.com. And um, we call it Zinnia because the Zinnia, I'm a big gardener. And the zinnia flower is a flower uh, that has two meanings that really speak to us. One is that it is the flower um, that is about memories of forgotten friends. And the other is that zinnias will grow effing anywhere. (laughs) You know, they thrive in the worst of conditions. And so um, we like to think that perhaps we're helping people living with dementia thrive beyond their diagnosis. Wow. That is amazing. I want to ask you about Zinnia, what it meant. I didn't even know it was a flower. Um, But now I know. So that's awesome. Memory of forgotten friends and it thrives in the worst conditions. That is beautiful. Um, This is wonderful. And if somebody wants like a caregiver um, out there wants to potentially take your training, they would do that through 
The tra my training, I would say that, I, so I have a website which is called thrivingwithdementia.com. Okay. And anybody can look at my website and see um, me lecturing about, like I talked about doing a lecture called how to be friends with people living with dementia. Mm -hmm. That's on my website. Anybody okay. is welcome to go look at that. Um, and the zinniatv.com, um, I would say that if there's a tab where you can contact us, um, so it's a, it's a subscription service. It's, it's pretty inexpensive. It's about yeah. four, it's less than $5 a month, yeah. um, for, for families. But, um, we also, um, offer a really reduced rate for nonprofits and we never, ever want pricing to be a barrier. I am such an advocate for family care partners. So if there's anybody listening, who's like, yeah, even five bucks a month, man, just write yeah. to me. Yeah. I'll give it to you. Right. We, we want people to be able to use our, our product. So yeah, that is incredible. Hopefully one day it becomes a state funded product as well, which would be incredible. And, um, and one last piece, because we talked about it and I thought the website looked so cool um, and such a great story, but stumped town dementia.com you had mentioned. Oh yeah. Stumped town. <laughs> dementia. So there's a blog called stumped town dementia and the person who maintains that blog her name is lickety glitz and she's amazing it is an irreverent humorous but also really tender look at what is really honest look at what is it like to be a care partner and i met lickety just because i i was a follower of her blog and so we started communicating. I think the first thing that I wrote to her was, I love you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she wrote back and she was like, if you love me, we need to talk. Um, but anyway, so um, sadly she lost her mom, which is who the blog was about. She lost her last year and she is a force of nature. And she decided that what she was going to do is make a movie chronicling what is it really like to be a care partner? So she created this film called Women, Wine, Women, and Dementia, or is it Women, Wine, and Dementia? I forget which, but um, it, it Wine, Women, and Dementia. Yeah. And she bought herself a van and she traveled around the country with a film crew. And she met with all of these people who she had communicated with through her blog. And I was so happy to be one of those people. And so um, I, on my LinkedIn profile, I have a, um, a, a link to her trailer, but it's also on her website. So um, I think the trailer is really exciting and I have gotten to see the first cut of the movie and I think it's awesome. Amazing. Okay, good. So we're going to put all of these links in the show notes. So anybody out there who is living with somebody who um, has just recently been diagnosed with dementia, if you want to learn about how to prevent it, if you want to learn how to support yourself, remember to support yourself, care for yourself if you're caring for somebody else with dementia. Um, all the links will be here and you will get access to incredible amount of resources. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, expertise, all that hard work that you did. You could have easily have had this experience and then just gotten a job back in tech and, you know, moved past this, but you chose to take all, everything that you experienced and what you learned and to turn it into something that is going to, you know, it's helping, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So I just want to so. thank you for so, being you yeah. and everything that you do for yeah. this big, large community of individuals that are out there who live with dementia and, um, or someone with dementia. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
Yeah, it has been such a pleasure. We're going to have to do this again and dive deeper into all the other topics which we didn't get into, including sleep <laughs> and so on. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Allison. Thank you to our listeners. And um, I will follow up with you with all of the things that you need to know about so that you can eat real to heal. And there we have it, folks. What an incredible interview. There is so much good learning to take away from everything that Allison shared. So please go ahead. If you enjoyed this interview and found any value in it, go ahead and share it with your loved ones. You might even want to sit with them and play it, have it playing in the background while you cook a healthy meal together. Maybe you have go for a walk together and you share some AirPods and each person can be listening to it and you can discuss the content of this show and then make a goal, make a big, hairy, audacious goal really make the goal to be the healthiest that you've ever been in your life and then start to implement some of the actions. And you can do that starting today. So go find an accountability partner, make that happen and see what you can do to create better mental health, better physical health and overall total life health. Because isn't that what we're here for? We're just here for a short time, not a long time, but it can truly be a good time. Thanks everyone. And don't forget to sign up for the retreat and our get off your fat ass program. And I look forward to seeing you next week on the eat real to heal podcast. Bye-bye.